0: hi everyone i'm riley blanks your hostess and the creator of woke beauty a storytelling platform reimagining the everyday act of self-celebration for and by all women This show brings you unfiltered conversations with a dynamic myriad of female visionaries who have developed personal success despite trauma and hardship by leaning into grit and discernment. We explore the messy, interwoven realities of mental health, holistic wellness, intricate family dynamics, racial complexity, and the exceptional discoveries that lead to fulfillment. This is our pledge to the power of resilience and the impact of perspective for kimberly cowens the biracial identity crisis came in waves a trip to brazil age 17 changed the way she saw her curly hair forever and after wave number two hit she left architecture to start the cult indie hair care brand skimdo when you're russian and jamaican born in london and raised in thailand Things are anything but smooth. Well, actually, it turns out, everything but the hair. Since I'm talking to you as a, as a friend and a guest and not a CEO, Kim Cowens. Do, you ever, do people ever say Cowens? All the time. All Why do time. people complicate names like that? I want to know. I think people
1: want it to be something else I think that's the reason for how people read something they read it the way that they want to hear it themselves because you know and and, and me personally I get it because cow to say cowans doesn't really sound like that's what we should be saying we should be saying cuns should be going straight over the cow bit but uh, but it's very much there.
0: That's interesting. I I have that same issue with my last name, blanks. People always want to say banks or blank. They just want to yep. take off an S or add a letter yeah, or off- whatever. Yeah,
1: they take off my S too. So
0: bizarre. Okay, so tell me, where were you born? And how do you identify with that place? I was born
1: in London. Uh, England, in case you couldn't tell. And I was born in the borough of Camden, but I was born in Hampstead and I was born at the Royal Free, which sounds like a fancy hospital, but isn't. Um, And um, it's in a really gorgeous area of Hampstead. And I really identify with that area, mainly because we spent a lot of time there while I grew up. Uh, My mother's ex-husband lived in Hampstead and so my older brother was there a lot. And so we were all friendly. So we were all all hung out up there in Belsize Park too where most of my mother's friends were living. And uh, it was a lovely sort of villagey, relaxed, very Jewish. I'm Jewish heritage, um, which makes me bluish, black Jewish. Part of a pretty good bluish crew which include Drake and Lisa Bonet. So no real complaints about that. But I, yeah, I identify with it also because of the Jewishness of, 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 of that area. And um, because I predominantly spent time there with my mother and her friends and her ex-husband and my older brother. So my formative child-like years really identify with the Hampstead stomping ground uh for sure but I grew up in Marylebone which is central London.
0: Hmm. So what do you think is the difference between your formative years and growing up?
1: Well my mother moved to Thailand when I was 10 and I went to boarding school in the countryside of England in Hampshire. And uh, this was like a real big split fork for me. I proceeded to spend all of my holiday time away from school in Thailand on the beach, not concerned about what I looked like, not being bullied. I had a really free existence uh, I was swimming, snorkeling, walking up and down the beach, meeting random people all day long, hanging out with my mom and her scuba diving friends and her nightclub friends. Now, my mother was a DJ, but she was also a scuba diving instructor, which is one of the key elements of her decision of going to Thailand, which is she could finish her instructor um, course and and work as a scuba diving instructor by day and at night time uh, be a DJ and teach English to the hospitality industry, which, which actually didn't work in her favor in the end because she taught English so well, they went on and got better jobs somewhere else, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is quite a funny and typical story of my mother uh, doing things so well that um, the original the original aim is completely missed and, uh, and and perhaps I do inherit some of that, I must say. It comes under being misunderstood and, and overachieving at the wrong times and, and not sticking to a narrative or sticking to uh, um, the parameters of, of a job and uh, wanting to do even better, but actually it doesn't work out for people who you're working for. So. <laughs> That is definitely something I saw happening and potentially absorbed. Um, but one of the other things I absorbed, which is most advantageous, is that I absorbed la- absorbed languages. And um, I absorbed Thai. I got that by osmosis. I never learned it. Um, but my mother spoke French to me and my brother growing up at home um, because she she grew up in Geneva. So her first language was probably French and, um, and so she spoke French to us at home. So I had I had, I had three languages uh, being revolved and used um, and absorbed growing up. and that was very, that was very formative in, in a separate totally separate way to um, you know our, our motley crew in Hampstead and, and, and that whole Belsize Park thing. Um, and it was it was very different when I went to boarding school because i I had mostly been part of a very small group of girls in my primary school. I think there were f- five of us who were friends, and we' we were pretty much the only friends we saw. And then I went to boarding school, and I was living with, you know, 200 girls and um I felt very alone and uh, misunderstood immediately and um and that carried on pretty much the entire time I was there.
0: How were you misunderstood?
1: I developed physically very early in life so when I was eight years old I was already wearing a cup bra and I hated to wear the bra and so I often didn't wear it and um, I became used to not wearing it when no one was looking sort of thing or if I had like a a babysitter and they were looking after me for the day I wouldn't put the bra on And, and then I went to boarding school and obviously I had bras with me that I didn't want to wear and I felt that because I was away from home that no one would really know and um I was immediately treated by my classmates as some sort of strange, overgrown girl who had crazy hair and ultimately they wanted nothing to do with me and found me a big nuisance and someone to poke fun at and trick and tease and, um, and, I, and, I, and I did really let it happen. To make matters worse, I was I was also not not very grown up with this grown up body. So when I arrived at boarding school, I arrived with a couple of Barbies, but they were Cindys, Cindy dolls, um, and this bunny floppy that my grandma gave me. And uh, everyone just thought it was so hilarious. It was it was instantly embarrassing for me, and. I felt so much shame and I definitely showed it. And that was like my first, my first footing, the, my my first entry into being locked in a boarding school with these girls and boys, where rumors go around a whole school in half a day. And um, I had all the wrong clothes. Uh, everything was wrong. Everything was just wrong. And uh, I hated it so much. I, I told my mom, I, I can't be here. And she's like, well, I uh, can't help you there because I'm moving to Thailand. And I, that was the first time I knew she was moving it was after I entered the school. So I felt very tricked into it. And, um, and I was very, very worried and upset that I had done something so wrong that my mother wanted to leave the country and, uh, without me. Because I was like her sidekick, you know, we always together. And um, I felt so safe with my mother. You know, she's a really strong person. And uh, for the record, my mother is, is white. And she is Russian heritage, born in New York. She's born in Manhattan. and um, And so even though I didn't even think about identifying myself at that point in my life I the connection I had with my mother was was not just a a loving connection but it was somewhere I felt really safe and um, because she's so strong and, and can be so angry and 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 fight for things I always saw her do these things in you know with road rage with people trying to uh, rip her off at the garage, like loads of different situations where people were trying to to mess with her and she was just not having it. And so I I grew up around that and just letting her get on with being the protector, the strong person, everything else. And so when I was separated from her, it really felt like umbilically separated, like cut off. And um, I felt really like I was in deep water and I didn't know how to swim. That's how it felt, Um, but I had to get on with it. And so I just became a clown. Um, I just, my, my currency to get along and to get through was to take the piss out of myself, take the piss out of other people, come up with crazy elaborate jokes, laugh in class all the time, get people to laugh I was just a clown I was a clown with a large bosom (laughs) and really (laughs) and really uh you know hair that I had no idea how to deal with you know especially with my mother not there she didn't know how to deal with it but she had her routine with me so um I missed it I really missed that I missed sitting in the bath and my mother putting half a bottle of conditioner in my hair and combing it or not brushing it and doing a plait and going to bed you know I, I missed that I was all of a sudden at boarding school under a shower head where I have like a just a certain amount of time that I was allowed to be in the shower because everyone had to use them wondering what the hell I was going to do with my hand so I would just put loads of conditioner in it and then sort of go bed with wet hair and it would wake up absolutely a complete mess and then I would just wet it again and put it in a back in a bun that's all I could do I didn't really know how to deal with it and uh, I was very ashamed of it and people made me feel ashamed of it too so between the ages of 10 and 16 I was at boarding school those are really formative years Um, and my respite was going to Thailand between term times. It was going to Thailand, being free, not thinking about my hair, everybody being different because the one great thing about growing up on this little island, uh, it's called Koh Samui. But one of the great things about living on an island like that, with it being very touristy, was that every couple of weeks you'd get a whole new group of people from different places. So you'd get the Israelis and then you'd get the Italians and then you'd get the Dutch and then you'd get the Greeks and then you'd get the Spanish and then you'd get the Germans in August. And um, every couple of weeks we were refreshed with people. And of course, we had no smartphones and things like that. And a lot of people were backpacking and staying in little huts along the beach. And so really the way that you communicated with each other was walking up and being like, hey, you look interesting. Or where are you from? Or you'd hear someone talking while they were ordering a milkshake or, or whatever and you'd be like oh are you German it was always something I loved to do because I always watched my mother do it was play this where are you from game but not actually ask people where they were from but try and guess and it, and it was almost quite a flirtatious exchange I would say because a lot of those things led me as I became more in my feminine power and my sexual power that those things became like a, you know, flirty, a flirty tool. Where are you from? Da-da-da-da, oh, where are you from? Oh, from oh, okay. And it became this thing. And and I would really look forward to being appreciated by different people because at school, this was not happening to me. And so I would go to Thailand and I would feel really so good. And I would hang out with the ladyboys boys. They were friends of mine. I was friends with lady Boys since I was a kid, kid. Um, we used to do songkran, which is Thai New Year together. And Thai New Year, what you do is when it, one of the main elements of it is you're washing out the old year and bringing in the new one, to bring in the new one. Now, to wash out the old year, you spray each other with water. Now, you can, like, chuck it on people. You can get, like, water guns, whatever it is, whatever you want to do. It's You can just do it to anyone. For this three-day period on the island or anywhere in Thailand you can chuck water on the police like it's <laughs> it's pretty cool uh, and they can chuck water on you and so I used to do song crown with the lady boys and um they used to put makeup on me uh and they would just tell me how beautiful I was and they used to love my hair and 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 I and I genuinely felt so different growing up in Thailand than in the west right um very very different and um and so often i would come back to school after a thailand break feeling really confident but within three days that would that would go
0: and so was it hard for your mom to i mean it sounds like you were so close how did your experience at boarding school affect your relationship with your mother I started to become really angry with her
1: when I was... My little brother was born when I was 11, and I didn't expect this. I didn't expect my mother to have another child, especially while she was away and everything else. I I didn't really know what her plan was being away, but I didn't imagine it to be having another child. And that really, um, that really changed things for me. I think I started to become very upset, particularly after my little brother was born. And um, I started to be jealous of him and the attention that he was getting because I already felt like I had significantly less attention. And then I had to share my holiday attention with him. So my mother and I started to really fight. And I started to really push her and say really horrible things, and she would say them back and 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 I, I would say this went on for many years, many years and 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 really, when I got into the terrible teens when you're really vicious, it was when we really started to to really hurt each other with words, for sure. And I would blame her for everything, and she would make me feel like these things would should happen to me then, you know, it was this sort of exchange Um, because, you know, like I said, my mother is a very fierce woman. She won't be backed down. And even though she had her reasons for doing what she did going away, um, she, for some reason, felt like explaining them wasn't going to hit the spot for me. I think her reasons at the time when I was a teenager to explain it to me were so deep and personal that maybe she didn't trust me with them. She had her own thing going on, and I understand it now. She needed to get away from keeping up with the Joneses in London and mm. being judged and, and so on. She wanted to get away and uh, do her own thing her way and that's what she did she she took control of her destiny and off she went and I and I admire that
0: you've talked about initially how you absorbed um one of your mother's traits kind of like her knack for doing something so well that it morphs into something different from her initial vision um maybe (laughs) even to the point where it doesn't benefit her and so yeah. in, what way, in what way have you taken on traits from your mother? I'm curious how these experiences and how traits that you witnessed and experienced, um, how they've sort of morphed into your adulthood.
1: I would say definitely a leadership trait that perhaps you shouldn't necessarily have in certain situations. So for instance, um, the places I've worked throughout my, my life that haven't been on Skimdo, I've always really naturally wanted to lead and I wanted to show why that was a good idea. So I would do more and s- speak out more and and and, and try and, and show my employers why they chose me to work for them. But I, I think I, I often try to be in a, lead, a leadership role before I really earned it you know there's always a hierarchical system in in the workplace and I never understood that I never ever learned about the hierarchy of the workplace because to me it just felt ridiculous that if you come in you have to be certain place before you can get to a certain place before you can get to a certain place I think the thing I share with my mother is that we want to go in guns blazing and astonish. We want to come in and astonish. My mother is definitely that woman who astonishes people. And I watched her do it. And that's really how she's gotten a lot of the wonderful things in her life um, is through being extremely entertaining and very interesting and inventive. And those things really enable you to astonish people. You know, it's a mix of your intelligence your timing, how much you listen to people—I think that's really important. You know, I, my mother and I, really listen to people and 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 remember things super well. And uh, that's 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 something that some people don't like. And you and you and you, you learn that in life. Uh, it's strange but true. Um, but yeah, I think you know, the the natural want to astonish has been something of my mother's uh traits that i absorbed and took into the workplaces that i that i that i that i went into and um you know it wasn't met with with applause or gratitude it was like what are you doing <laughs> calm down <laughs> do that just job that we asked you to do and stay where you are you know that's that's how it was with with the women that I work with, mainly the women who, who who group together to get rid of me at many different places. And I will say now, you know, especially with this all going on, uh, there's this uprising and focus on the racial disparities, and I will definitely wholeheartedly say that every single workplace I was in throughout my working life, working for other people, I was the only black person, and I was always engineered out by a group of white women, often white tears, and if not white anger, mm. or the same result, which was to get rid of me, and for no real reason, but a made up reason.
0: Well, and so that that was my, my next question was actually what part of your identity do you feel like has had the largest impact on you externally and how has that affected how you see yourself when you're by yourself?
1: Well, I think growing up, I always was told that I was mixed race. Well, we used to call it half-caste, but that's you can't use that term anymore. And so I growing up, I identified as half-caste. So I didn't belong on the black side and I didn't belong on the white side. And that's where I firmly hung out. And that's what people called me. And so that's who I was. I was the in-betweener where I could always be left out and, and for some reason I would understand it because I was half caste. I sort of accepted that and, and semi-expected it, especially from either side of my family. And then when I was a bit older, sort of late teens, I would say, I and you know, this is growing up, you know, between between Thailand and, and, and London, but um I I definitely felt started to feel as I got older more black, but not necessarily that I was being accepted as black. I didn't I didn't feel like I knew what being black was. I didn't know I certainly didn't feel like I knew what being black was like my aunts who are from two black parents. I'm um, my aunts being my, my dad's my dad's uh, sisters who I used to play with a lot growing up because they were around my age. But, um, you know, I definitely didn't identify with them because of their stories and and just sort of ha- how they placed me, which was very different from them. And then I definitely didn't feel like my white friends or family. Um, so I, I really remained in this sort of half-caste, mixed-race bracket for a while. And then once I heard someone describing me We were at a house party and um, there was a guy there that I was interested in. I'm sure I was at this house party because of him, because he was there. And Mm -hmm. he went into another room to take a call, because it was really loud where we were hanging out. But I could hear him because I was by the door. He just went down the corridor a bit. And whoever was on the phone with him was asking him, who was there? You know, we, we've we all done it. Who's at this place? Is it worth me coming? <laughs> and so someone is asking him who's there. And this is the first time I ever heard myself being described. So he goes, oh yeah, you know that girl, that girl that I've been, you know, you know, yeah, you know. Yeah, Kim, yeah, you know, the black girl with the big hair, the big, she's got big ass, big tits big lips and I just remember hearing this and I was like oh I don't know about that I feel really weird about that
0: yeah how old were you
1: like maybe like 19 or something 18 19 and I remember I could have been younger I could have been 17 but I I just remember thinking that all of those things made me feel really gross. and I couldn't really put my finger on it because I'm sure it was an accurate description in you know in a very simple way. It didn't make me feel like a human. it It made me feel like an object, of course. Not that I didn't want to be his object, I'm sure, but it 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 felt weird to hear myself being described as is that black, that black girl basically, who had these like juicy things going on, and pretty much that's it. And um, it was the first time I'd heard that, and I wondered if that's how people were describing me.
0: I think it's very isolating. I think that's what it is. It's like because you said it's not that I didn't want to be his object. Right, like Mm -hmm. There is definitely this objectification that's happening. It almost feels sometimes grotesque. But it's also like you feel this sort of closeness, like you're a part of it. And then something is said that detaches you from the environment. And so all of a sudden, you're jolted out of this space that feels almost safe. Like not -hmm. not quite safe, but almost safe. You know, like you're a part of this group. Like you belong. And then all of a sudden... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like you're it's very, it's very jarring. Out of nowhere, you realize, oh, like actually I don't really belong here or I'm not I'm not really embraced here. Oh gosh. I just I I I feel for that 17, 18, 19 year old girl that you were and how you were in this space where you're excited and you like this guy and you're like, I just know what that feels like. And then all of a sudden you realize oh, wait, that's not really – it's almost like that's not even really my place. Like, he doesn't even see me like that. Like, he can't just see me as a cute girl. He has to see me as a black girl.
1: Exactly. He can't even see me the way that I'm hoping he's seeing me, which is through a very personal connection that I felt was there. The chemistry and everything else felt colorless. You know it felt a meeting of minds and and loins, you know and, yeah. um, and and not and not to be described. That's how it felt, even though I'm sure I'm describing him, but I'm not saying he's this white guy with you know perfect lips and long legs, you know, would never have I'm much am much more poetic than he managed to be. Um, And B, I I definitely have always seen further into people that I'm having a connection with than perhaps they even know. Mm. I like to live in my romance. And I think that wanting to live in my romance helped me create this product.
0: Yeah, okay, let's talk about your product. I mean, I really want to talk more about your identity. Let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. Well, I do, but I, we need to give context to your product because it's, it's woven out through your dialogue. Right. And so, which is interesting because I asked you about how you see yourself and you explained how a few of these other people had described you. And then at the end, you managed to somehow come back to your product. You know what I mean? So I think that speaks to how you see yourself.
1: It is. And it it is. It's like my product is is ultimately all of my inner child work in a in a jar that you can pump out. Um, Because when I was 23, my grandmother died, the grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who, you know, played a big part in in, uh, my growing up by being someone I could rely on. And um, someone who every single day of my life, while she was alive, called me to tell me how much she loved me or just simply that she loved mm-hmm. me. And so I felt very visible and very, it's, it's amazing what you can do when you feel loved. And and I really felt I could do anything with her around. And so when she died, uh, I felt invisible, absolutely invisible, because there was no one person in my family who demonstrated such a focus of love towards me. And, um, you know, and, and, and that's, that's it's never been the same again. Um, but when I was 23, when that happened, my grandmother's sisters racially, verbally attacked me after the funeral, after the cremation and it came out of nowhere for me because I grew up with this side of the family predominantly and those were people in my family that felt like this was my family. And they called me a gutter snipe and they told me that I was a shame on the family for being brown and that they never wanted to ever see me again and they stuck to that and that they don't have to pretend anymore And that, that, that's when I entered an identity crisis. That's when I really felt that the colour of my skin was a big issue. Because I was about to lose half my family because of it. And nothing could have prepared me for what followed, which was... Uh, a real tumbling down of not just my confidence but all the uh all the all the strength that I had and all the the way that I saw myself and could see myself being you know the manifestations you don't even before you even knew what the word manifestation was you were doing it as a kid you were dreaming and and you were delighted with those dreams and you really believed that they could be true and sometimes these things did seem like they were true and happening and it's because you were so focused on them and 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 beautiful things seemed to happen and I remember as a kid I I would I would always believe that I could have what I wanted to have and it wasn't like things it was like feelings it was like it was very spiritual for a child um you know I often I would often think that if I got angry enough I could turn into a tiger and people would be very afraid of me and. It was something I believed so much that it stopped me from getting too angry because I didn't want to do that to anyone. <laughs> it was like these these sort of beliefs, these sort of spiritual beliefs I had in myself, were so solid, and I really believed that I anything could happen and that life was magic. And and um, and when this when this happened to me after my grandmother's cremation everything just fell apart everything my whole life fell apart uh the the very the very fact that I stopped believing in in magic and in in myself meant that nothing nothing really um stuck and I lost everything I lost everything I loved I lost my home I lost My boyfriend, who was the love of my life, you know, uh, I lost loads of friends. Um, I became very numb and I hated what I saw in the mirror. I couldn't work out who I was or, you know, whether I had a chance at any sort of dreams again. I didn't even know what to dream. Anymore, it was so. It was such a. It was such a. Um, it was such a trauma. It was such a big, big trauma, and I ended up in hospital because this trauma turned out to alter my chemistry in my body. So I ended up um, being diagnosed with parathyroid tetany. And um, when you have parathyroid tetany, which is an imbalance of calcium in the thyroid, um, if, you, if you're put under immense emotional distress, you end up having a fit and you can end up in a coma very quickly. It doesn't take long. And I, was, and I ended up having this fit and I ended up being rushed to hospital. And you know, they got me just in time because they said I was slipping into a coma and this this ended up happening twice before they really figured out what was wrong with me and it's from trauma it's from serious trauma and and that's what that's what really changed things for me was 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 that and also you know not having anyone to support me through it so my mother was not living in the country and she had my little brother, who is mentally disabled, she had him to, to look after. And my father um, was not available to me. And so I really went through everything on my own. Uh, every huge trauma I've had, I've, I've gone through on my own. And I think it took me, took me a long time, it took me moving to America When I was 20, when I was 32, it took me moving to America to really want to start again without the carousel of bad memories. I felt like it was a survival move because. I had bigger plans. I wanted to be happy again. I wanted to make new friends and really work hard on this this thing that I built out of, out of uh, healing myself, wanting to heal myself and, and, and be visible in a way that I enjoyed. And and that's skim do. So now we can talk about it.
0: <laughs> Gosh, but there are so many directions to go from here. I feel this immense pressure because like if I were listening to this,
1: well, I would have well, so
0: many questions. I would have so many questions. And so I want to make sure I ask the right questions for like the me that's that would great. be listening. You know what I mean? Um. Uh, yeah, that's what I must do. So before we get into skim, do I just have to know what was it about the move that led to healing? You was it the act of moving across a body, a big body of water? Was it New York? Was it America? Was it leaving your family? Like, what was what was it? There was something formulaic. I I feel like that led to you almost recovering right what was it I think
1: it I think it was the distance and also I am American as well so I knew I could come to New York where I had lived before when I was 18 I went to school in New York I went to a performance school called the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute and I got a scholarship to go there when I was 18 and And I had a really incredible time in New York uh, while I was studying. And I thought, where where can I go where I don't have any bad memories? (laughs) And I was like, New York, you can go there. And you can go there because you're American. So you can quite literally get off the plane and walk in. And so you should take advantage of that.
0: And so do you feel, yeah. Do you feel like are you as American as you are British? What is your what is your language around who you are, racially, ethnically,
1: and otherwise? So well I'm mixed, my dad's Jamaican and my mother, and my dad's Jamaican, born in Jamaica. My mother is American born to Russian parent, Russian heritage. And grew up in Switzerland but went to boarding school in England and I also went to boarding school in England. So I really identify as a London girl and I identify as a privileged one because of my mother's side of the family being really who I was around and the school I went to was really for privileged people and the education that I that I got in my schooling was extremely privileged so I'm in this weird conundrum of someone who gets racially attacked and targeted who also feels privileged ironically who was given this education really to make sure that I had as best chance as possible at getting ahead in life however in England it didn't mean no favors because it's such a class war that me speaking the way I do and growing up where I grew up means that a lot of people don't want to help you so then you go for these higher-end jobs and you go there and and these white women don't want you to do well there. And so you leave there and then you bounce around trying to figure out who you are. And in the meantime, your family uh, disowns you and you're not close to your Jamaican side and so you're really uh, isolated again. And... And so you think of where you can be accepted. Where, can, where would I be accepted? Where, where is this, this voice that I have that is not doing me any favors where I come from, come from? Where is it gonna be an aphrodisiac? Where can I go where I have no bad memories? Where can I find this dream that I want to execute and complete? Oh, well, I can go to my other identity. I'm American. I can go to America and I can be English. I can have this voice that goes down pretty well, if not necessarily go down well, is definitely listened to more. And I can go and be in a place where everybody boasts about their dreams and definitely feels that they have a chance at completing them and going for them and and being cheered on and not struck down. I can go to America where it's a really big black community in New York. I can feel like I belong somewhere for the first time in a long time. I can maybe find my identity again. So those are the, those are the elements of, of being English and being isolated in my identity and yearning for a belonging and a chance to re-approach my dreamy state that I had so, so down pat as a kid. And, and that was that was me stepping into my American identity and, and being like, okay, well, I'm American too. Let me go and be American. And so now, of course, I sound English, but I've, I've been here for four years through a really crazy time of Trump taking over from Obama, of, of everything that we know has happened in the last four years. It's been pandemonium, to say the least. And in that time, I have gotten very into American politics and history and Black history in America, and my own Black history, and I don't think I've learned more in the last four years, ever. <laughs> and, and, and really, um, my day-to-day is, is about American history and Americans, mainly black Americans. And, and again, I'm that funny thing where I'm not African-American, but I'm American and I'm black. So where, where is my allegiance mm. going to be? It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Um, because ancestrally I feel it too I feel all of it I feel I feel all the pain and I feel fiercely protective and I feel determined and I feel very focused in my purpose very all of a sudden very focused in my purpose and very connected to my black identifying sisters because I'm not white passing. Okay. And, um, as white as I might sound on the telephone, that's not who I am. And it's taken moving to America and being very rejected in, in, in other ways from other things. It's taken moving to America to, to find, my focus and, you know, my focus on race and identity for sure.
0: Mm. And in regards to you finding your focus, I think within you discovering who you are in all of your many layers, it sounds like you also found your voice within entrepreneurship and creativity and artistry. um, And what, like a little witch in (laughs) the kitchen kind of thing, right? (laughs) So, um, (laughs) yep. So tell us about Skimdo. Skimdo is my brand
1: and I'm so proud of it and myself. It's essentially um, a curl styling cream that does some really clever stuff and when I was younger growing up I would use so many products and I and I was very it was very clear that the marketing was not for me because I never saw myself in any marketing I mean I would see you know in the John Frieda ads the before picture would be something close to my hair and that was that was supposed to be terrible and then the after pictures like smooth and silky definitely not my hair definitely not how my hair is going to be using a serum and so i knew that wasn't marketed for me and then i had my jamaican family saying you need to use this this and this and these things would like turn my hair into a rock and was very hard to wash out and uh i felt like that's not for me either and so i was in this again isolated place and would often, you know, be like, okay, nothing, nothing is going to help this this curse that I have, you know, because I was bullied so much about this hair, that I, I genuinely would wake up feeling like, oh my god, the curse, what's it doing today? No, um, you know, it was it was very distracting, very distracting. If I think of all the hours and the, and the time and the and focus somewhere else, I could could get back away from. My hair being an issue. And let me remind you, this hair was only an issue in the West. And
0: meaning not in Thailand?
1: Not in the East. Not in Thailand. Um, and not traveling around the east either. Never an issue. It was it was like, wow. They were like, wow. You know, they, they wanted it. They were like, how does it do that? It was it was fascinating in a very positive way. Um and I went to Brazil when I was seventeen with my friend Lola. We had been part of this very specific dance scene called psychedelic trance and uh, we we it was our little family, it was very hippie, very hippie. and um but we loved it, you know it was our it was our it was our real reason for living every weekend we'd look forward to these crazy parties in derelict buildings and under railways and things like that it was very fun and we actually met in a in a derelict pub it was uh quite quite an amazing night anyway so we'd heard about this party going on in brazil that was the whole crew that we knew were going there and um and we were like we we need to go to brazil and so we started telling people now like, you can't go to brazil You're you know i was 17 she was 18 And everyone was like, Brazil is so dangerous. You can't go there. You're going to get murdered. No one will ever find you and all the rest of it. And uh, classic Leila and I were like, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm, 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 okay. Anyway, we're going to Brazil. (laughs) So we put all our money together and got these cheap Alitalia tickets. And we were like, well, here we go. And off we went to Brazil. Landed in Rio. Her dad got freaked out. So he booked us a hotel because we were like, well, we're just going to get there and just see. And he was like, I can't risk it if you guys are gonna go, which we were, uh, he's gonna help us out. So luckily Lola's dad got us a hotel. And uh, so we got a, a taxi to the hotel and woke up the next morning and bright and early, so excited to be in Rio. And we were like, right, today we're going to get a Brazilian wax, get a Brazilian bikini, get a the beach, and we had our, our little thing um get really tanned it's something we really love to do as kids get really tanned as tanned as you could because it showed that i've been on holiday and so off we toddled down the street at the hotel we're like wow this is so cool we find somewhere literally five minutes away that said brazilian wax that was quite an experience (laughs) we got through that felt very naked both of us afterwards couldn't stop giggling and we get down to the beach we hadn't got our Brazilian bikinis obviously at that point we we were just desperate to get get into the action so we go and we plop down on Copacabana beach and we're like what do we do you know we we, can we leave our stuff here and go into the water you know we suddenly became very aware of how dangerous we might be (laughs) and um the good Good news is is that we did not look out of place. People think I'm Brazilian all the time, and she she's Russian, but she's Amazonian, and and could definitely pass as a Brazilian. And uh, so I get we it sit all there. The time too. To... Yeah, exactly. And and have you been?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. they think you're. You've been there. Yeah, right? they think I'm from the south of so, Brazil because I'm tall. Yeah. But... Okay, they think I'm from Bahia. Interesting. Um,
1: and, but it's like, you see it there, you get there and you, you get it, you're like, oh, I get it. Yeah, this is somewhere I do look like I'm from. Yeah. And um, we're sitting on the beach and I'm just like absolutely mesmerized by these women. They're playing volleyball and they're just hanging out with each other. And there's a whole group of them and they're every shade. They're like really dark with, with like um, peach fuzz blonde hair and long long braids and there's like every color denomination you can think of all friends hanging out but what really struck me was four different girls with huge curly hair their natural hair it was glorious it was so they were so proud of it the way that they Carried themselves the way that the hair moved and fell, with the way that they were talking and and like touching each other and and laughing and everything. Everything was was just perfection. They just looked like to me from a completely other planet. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and I I was staring. I'm a real starer as well, and I was staring, and I nudged low, and I was like, I really really I want hair like that that's you see them that's the hair I really want and Lola turned around she's like you do have hair like that I was like I don't have hair like that and she's you do I've seen your hair when it's dry because I never ever ever wanted my hair to be dry it was always wet because I never wanted it to you know expand the way it looked yeah I couldn't face it ever I never could face it it was too traumatic and she's like, I can, I know what you have under there and I've seen it and that's pretty much it. And I was like, no, 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 There's, that is just not. And I felt really annoyed with her because I felt like she was telling me what I wanted to hear. That's how detached I was from who I was. And so that was that, but I became absolutely obsessed. I couldn't get the image out of my head. I, I constantly wanted to go back down to the beach all the time and, and just stare and we ended up going to this party, which was between Rio and Sao Paulo at a place called Parachi. It was on pra- Praia de Parachi meeting and it was just this beautiful old cobblestone fisherman's village, which was sort of half in the in the in the glorious, lush, mountainous uh waterfall y vista and then beautiful beach. And um we ended up going to this party. And it was just tons of these girls there. It was. I was in heaven. I was watching a fashion show of my favorite ever identity that I've ever seen. That I could feel. I could. I could connect to it. I could. I was connecting to it in a really wild way. And I was absorbing. And I was staring. And I was documenting. And I was like soaking it up. And. I plucked up the courage to go and ask a couple of them like what do you use in your hair you know and they were like oh Garnier Garnier and this and this and I was like okay I've got to remember this. I've got to remember this I've got to get to the shop I've got to get back to the shop when we leave this party so we, we get end up going back to Rio obviously after this party because we've got to fly back and the first thing I wanted to do was go to a supermarket and find this bloody hair products and um you know, off I went and I was like, do you know where this 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 is this, this is and, and I could only find two different things that they that I remember them saying because the other things I think they were like salon only and I couldn't find any salons. I just it was just too difficult. And um so I got these products and I started experimenting with them while we were still in Rio. And I wore my hair out one night. I think it was like the last night that we were there. I actually let my hair out with this product and it felt wonderful. It was. It felt very loose and and light and big and and I felt really happy with it. And, and I and it was this. What was this night that I felt really special. Like I felt so special that night. I was like, Wow. Oh my god. This is is this me? That was that. Went back to London. Promised myself. This is this is who you're going to be now. And I wore my hair out to go out with some friends one night. And we go to this club and I get trapped between this sort of two fire escapes, not two fire escapes, but like a staircase between two parts of the club where people are just moving between rooms. And as I'm going through, this guy goes, whoa, your hair and just gives me the biggest like shaggy dog rub in my hair and like catches his fingers in there and it gets caught and he's like ripping his hand out like his hand is in something so gross. And he's like, oh, and it just, and it yanked my hair and my hair, and you know, it was just this horrible experience of being just handled like a thing, uh, like an animal. And I went straight to the toilet and I just, put my head under the water and just wet it down and put it away. And I was like, I can't do this. This like I can't have this hair apparently. Like I can't, it's, I'm just not allowed it. Um, but it didn't stop this this urge I had, which was to figure out how I definitely could. And that I would have it to the point where people wouldn't touch it because it would be so admired. Like, okay, wow, this is special. And so I started experimenting with just loads and loads and loads of products. And I used to mix products together and and random ingredients, and I was obsessed with it. I did not stop. And then about a year later, um, I put a mix of different things in my hair and came out with a very incredible result. And it was just the exact hair I'd always dreamt I could have. On like it was exactly it. It was more desirable than what I than what I'd witnessed in Brazil. It was the next level, and it took me ten months to recreate <laughs> this mix. But it was a lot of things mixed together, right? It was like a lot of things, a lot of layering. It's like what we, what we all did for so long. And long story short, I ended up in architecture, and I ended up getting let go from that job for, again, uh, a white woman, feeling like she couldn't work with me. And so I was the one let go, but I got paid off. And I decided uh, in my mid twenties that I was going to use this money to turn this mix that I was making of so many different things into one safe product, just the one. I realized what my life was like, what my lifestyle was like. And I'm a really active person. I like to work out. I like to party. I like to forget about my hair. Uh, I like to go away for weekends. I like to go to festivals. That's my lifestyle. Now, that kind of lifestyle is not really in alignment with layering several different products up to seven different products for what two days worth of hairdo no I had to create something uh, a lot more active than that I had to create something super minimal I wanted one product and I wanted it to withstand an extremely active lifestyle and I didn't want to have to think about my hair for a few days and so I hired a team of chemists and we worked for took me a year another year to come up with this perfect product without paraben, sulfate, or formaldehyde. And that was seven years ago. So seven years ago, I created Skimdo. And Skim is actually my nickname. And do, for hairdo, Skims do, turned into Skimdo, because I wanted to create a brand with a name that would become synonymous with just the best curly hair, as in, she has the Skimdo.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. You can connect with us on Instagram at wokebeauty or me at Riley Blanks and learn more at wokebeauty.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Until next time, have a beautiful day, even if it's not that beautiful.